I'm Dr. Steve Siddell, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, this is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go. Welcome to Win The Day. If this is your first time here, I sit down with some of the world's great change makers to give you everything you need to take ownership of your financial, physical, and mental health. The quote for this episode comes from Benjamin Franklin and says, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And the guest we have today is an expert at helping you on the prevention side, but he's also pretty handy when you need an immediate cure for what ails you. I should know because he's not just a renowned entrepreneur and a good friend of mine, he's also a physical therapist who is the very person I go to whenever my body is not performing as it should be. Dr. Steve Sudell received his doctorate in physical therapy in 2009, and since that time, he's made it his mission to find non-invasive solutions to get people back to doing what they love. In 2013, he opened Prehab to Perform, a sports clinic that bridges the gap between physical therapy and performance training. Since then, he's helped thousands of athletes and active adults get out of pain and back into the game. Just two years later, in 2015, he co-founded Stretch Lab, a revolutionary assisted stretching facility that helps individuals improve their overall flexibility and well-being through stretching. Steve created the full range of stretching protocols that are still in use today and also trained hundreds of practitioners known as flexologists in the process. With Steve's expertise, Stretch Lab went from one location to more than 200 locations in less than four years. In 2019, Steve exited the company in a seven-figure deal. You'd think that was a good enough entrepreneurial background for everything that Steve had done, but he wasn't finished yet. After watching his younger sister, younger sister battle leukemia and suffer from extreme pain, he knew there was a lot more people who needed help. In 2017, to help the millions of people who suffer from chronic neck pain, he created the neck hammock. It arrived as the most affordable, portable, and effective at-home neck pain solution on the market. To fund the project, he launched two crowdfunding campaigns simultaneously that raised more than 1.6 million US dollars from 20,000 backers and landed in the top 1% of all Kickstarter campaigns. Since then, the Neck Hammock has been featured on the Dr. Roz Show, the Today Show, uh, Forbes, and Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop. After grossing more than $20 million in sales, Steve had his second seven-figure exit, which happened in January 2021. In this interview, we're going to talk about we're going to talk with Steve about how he's able to make his health a priority despite his intense entrepreneurial journey, how to create a product that people love, the secrets to his crowdfunding success and how you can do it too, when it's time to exit your passion project, and a whole lot more. Before we begin, hit that subscribe button and remember, a little inspiration at the right time can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend who needs to hear this episode, share it with them now. All right, let's win the day with Dr. Steve Sudell. All right, Steve, great to see you and good to have you on the show. Great to be here. Really excited. The, the reason I'm laughing right now is because Steve normally kicks my ass because he is the person I go to for everything for a physical training perspective. So it's nice to have Steve in the hot seat for a change. Well, why don't we kick off? Do you want to share a little bit about what your life was growing up and what career opportunities you felt like were available to you at a young age? You know, I grew up a pretty humble life. Uh, you know, I, I feel fortunate in that I grew up on some land, so I got to spend a lot of time, you know, in my yard exploring, uh, 
you know, creativity, having a large imagination. And, uh, you know, growing up, I just, I've always had, um, this need to make things easier and need to make things better. You know, I remember just, we doing things at a very young age, I would always wonder how can I make this easier? You know, maybe that's, you know, my laziness kicking in, but, um, there was always something that I wanted to do, uh, you know, find different ideas to, you know, random solutions. I remember doing that at a very young age. Um, it really didn't come together until, you know, after I graduated, you know, college before I realized that I actually could put my ideas, um, to work, but yeah, I grew up in a small town, Jupiter, Florida, which isn't so small anymore. And, uh, you know, from there I grew up playing a lot of sports, um, which kind of tied into some of my other, you know, products, the neck hammock, I grew up playing football. So I developed a lot of neck pain, which then translated later on to life. So, um, yeah, I just grew up, I, I was very lucky to grow up just very active. And I saw at a young age and how much better that made me feel, um, very early on, you know, I had a ton of problems with allergies and I was given every single, you know, pharmaceutical under the sun. I was on antibiotics ever since a very young age. I pretty much am immune to any sort of allergy medication. I realized that the, the solution was actually exercise. Whenever I would exercise, that would completely eliminate all of my allergies. And so I learned at, you know, like 16, 15, 16 years old on how much, you know, movement is medicine. You know, and that really started off for me. And that's what got me really interested in pursuing things like athletic training, physical therapy, and then, you know, beyond there, even more on like the personal training side, because I really believe that, um, you know, us just by taking care of our bodies, you know, we can have a really big impact on our overall quality of life. Yeah. Growing up on land, it's a massive gift, isn't it? I, I grew up on 10 acres in the middle of nowhere, just outside the city of, of Brisbane in Australia, which was great. And you just, you grow up playing every single sport that you can think of. And I feel like that's such a great background then for things like hand-eye coordination or anything else that you're, that you're doing. Uh, it's tough here in, in LA where there's obviously property prices are very, very expensive, but at least we've got a lot of beach areas to, to, go, on, to go and get outdoors. Uh, you mentioned football. Were there any other sports that were particularly... Uh, uh, something that you enjoyed doing when you were young that laid the foundation for some of the physical training you do today? Absolutely. So pre-football, I played a lot of actually soccer and baseball. So I would do, you know, baseball in the fall and soccer in the spring. And, and you know, I got very lucky doing the two sports because both kind of helped each other. You know, I would develop speed from soccer and I would develop a little bit of hand-eye hand coordination from baseball. And then when I got old enough, um, then that's when my parents allowed me to play tackle football. But I mean, I was always pretty involved in anything. You know, uh, I was very lucky that my grandfather taught me how to play golf at a young age. You know, so like all of my hobbies were revolved around recreation, we were revolved around, you know, sports. And and I just, you know, remember that on, whenever I was playing sports, my grades were always better. Um, I was always in obviously much better shape. And, you know, it just laid that foundation, how important that is. Yeah. So having that discipline on the sporting side as well, this contributes to a whole bunch of different areas. It's uh, a lot of the athletes who I've mentioned highlight the importance of having a coach, which is just like having a mentor, um, in different areas and things that you, that you go down, which is great. Um, your journey, it's probably weird to describe yourself as an inventor. Is that correct? Or is it something, is it a label that you're very comfortable with at the moment? The word inventor? I think it's a lot more comfortable now. Um, at first it was a little funky, but I actually had two inventions before neck hammock, which I'm very grateful that, 
Uh, I did, neither of them worked out, but they got me to start to think very early on, on, you know, the, the process of creating a patent and like, you know, what you actually do to sell the product. And, you know, I feel like had I had the idea of neck hammock first, I don't think it would have been nearly as successful as it is today. It may not even be around today. Um, so I got to kind of work out some of the kinks with some of the earlier projects. And, uh, and now it's, I mean, the, the, the hard part is, is limiting my ideas to things that I think I actually can scale because I have ideas left and right on how to make things better and easier. But you know, you have to kind of focus your attention a little bit on one thing at a time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how did you end up in LA after growing up in Florida? So I just, you know, I spent uh, the first 25, 27 years in Florida and uh, I just felt like, you know, it's kind of Groundhog Day a bit, you know, every weekend was the same, every week was the same. And, you know, Florida is great, but um, it, there wasn't much variety like there is in California. And my parents actually, they lived in California uh, when I was born and they would always talk about how great it was. So my wife is from farm country up in Pennsylvania, a town of 500 people. And we both had talked about making the trip to the West Coast. And so we're just like, you know, three years into, you know, our working world, we took advantage of uh, travel therapy jobs. And, you know, we found ourselves out in LA and haven't left, you know, we're, we've been here for over eight and a half, nine years now. How important is the environment that you're in somewhere like LA or even just getting out of a potentially a bubble that you grew up in? Like if uh, I was 28 years old when I first <clears> left <throat> home, like really for the first time to move to the complete other side of the world. And that was made me realize how much of a bubble that I had been and all amazing people and things, but it was so comfortable. It was such the norm. I needed to get completely out of that circumstance. Did you find that environment and the people and everything else in LA is what really helped springboard your idea of what's possible for your life? hundred percent. I, it's actually something that I talk about LA as much as many flaws as LA has. The one thing that I've never been exposed to is there's this creative energy that's in LA where there's so many people trying to do things and there's so much creativity and there's just so many like go-getters, um, that is unlike any place I've ever been, you know, where I come from, everyone has like a nine to five job, which is fine. But in LA, people are always thinking about like, you know, what's the next best thing that you can do. And, and I, I was very lucky that I opened my physical therapy clinic in 2013. And so I'd work very closely with people and, you know, have conversations, develop relationships. And the people that I met at my physical therapy clinic are the people who helped shape me actually as an entrepreneur and created connections and gave me ideas. And, and so had I just been a physical therapist in Florida, I don't think I would have accomplished anything close to what I've accomplished now just by that environment. So getting out of that bubble and getting you into a new environment and maybe it could have been different even if I went to another city, uh, but that was really, really important for me and crucial to the success that I've had. For sure. Uh, your mission is to find non-invasive solutions to get people back to what they love, which is great because it gets people away from surgery where people think that they want to have that potentially a magic bullet, but it doesn't fix the underlying reasons that might have caused some of those things, which is what I love so much about your work. Tell us about that mission and why it's so important to you. You know, people highly underestimate how intelligent the human body is. And when you give it the right tools to succeed, it can absolutely thrive. And we think that in modern medicine, that we're smarter than our bodies. And our bodies are such delicate ecosystems that we don't truly understand the impact of pharmaceuticals or surgery or, you know, all these, these things that can have really 
um, severe consequences. But, you know, by doing things just like, you know, diet, exercise, you know, proper, you know, nutrition, sleep, water, vitamin D, like you give those things to your body and it absolutely can thrive. And so my mission is to basically create things to facilitate, you know, non-invasive solutions because, you know, something like the neck hammock, for example, all it, all it essentially does is create cervical traction, which takes pressure off of your neck. You know, doing that, the risk versus reward of using that, the risk is extremely uh, low and the re reward is extremely high versus if you were to go get like a cervical, you know, disc um, operation, you know, you can have permanent consequences from that. And so that I'm, most decisions that I make in my life, you know, are doing that balance of risk versus reward. So, you know, that also kind of ties into my mission of non-invasive. Is there a problem now where it seems like when someone's sick, they want to go to the doctor, they want to get, they want to get a prescription that they can go and have a couple of tablets that over the next few days are going to fix them with anything that goes on. Is that a big problem that, that people, no matter what they're doing, we're in a TikTok world now where people want to, they want something and if, if it's not great in one tenth of a second, they're going to flick on with everything else. Is it becoming more and more of a problem with people wanting things like surgery and tablets to fix this stuff rather than the human body wanting to fix itself through a few little tweaks or seeing the right professionals? Totally. It, it, it's a real big problem. And it's a problem that really concerns me because you know, people just want things done yesterday and, you know, dealing with any sort of pain or dysfunction, they immediately want a pill for something or they want, you know, a procedure for something and, and really just have to kind of give your body a little bit of patience. And again, give it the right tools to succeed. You know, like for, again, one of the blessings of me, uh, having taken antibiotics at such a young age is that it basically destroyed my gut now. So, you know, every day I have to take probiotics and whatnot, but it also helped me teach, you know, learn solutions that I can take, you know, for example, like oregano oil, it's fantastic for sinus infections. And so I would have sinus infections all the time as a kid. And the more antibiotics it took, I I'm dealing with those consequences later on in life versus a good holistic solution where you don't need, you know, pharmaceuticals to help you, um, can a get rid of the infection and B keep you really healthy in the long run. You know, that's what people don't understand is that all these invasive solutions have consequences. They have side effects and we may not even completely understand them now. They may come out five years you know, down the road, 10 years down from the road, but they all have consequences. And, and really, if people are, were just a little bit more patient and focus on the basics, a lot of those problems can go away. Mm. Yeah, so true. Uh, you and your wife, Lindsay, have worked with so many different people of all walks of life. You've had just everyday people right through to celebrities and entertainers and athletes. Is there a particular transformation that you've been able to create for someone that you're most proud of through your work? Yeah, I mean, there, there's luckily for me, there's so many cool transformations. But I remember in particular, uh, there was a gentleman who came to me, his daughter-in-law actually brought him. He was uh, uh, an old um, Chinese man. He spoke like 10 words of English, um, but he couldn't get out of the car. And he was having a lot of issues like falling on the ground. And uh, so I, I worked with him, you know, twice a week for about six months. And at the end of the six months of working with him, we were doing full depth squats with a barbell on his back with 65 pounds on the bar in chains. And he was doing like sets of like 10 reps and he was so into it. He was always there early. Like the, the transformation of not being able to get out of a car to squatting, you know, full depth at 86 years old. 
I mean, it, it just, no one can believe that that's actually possible until they see it happen. And so having an example like him, who again, all I was seeing him was twice a week. He wasn't really doing anything else besides coming in that even just that little bit of work, but focus on what he really needs, you know, focus on those foundational movements, like a squat. It's extremely transformational and, and, you know, there's other stories just like it, but that's one that I'll just always, you know, cherish. We'll get into all your business stuff shortly, but I'm wondering is, is the reason that you still continue with everything you do on the clinical side with your work, obviously you don't have to do that with the position that you're in at the moment. Is the reason you do that because of transformations like that, that you can create for people? Yeah. I mean, I'm super passionate about my job. I know that the, the passion word gets thrown out there a lot, but it is something that every day I look forward to doing my job because every day I'm presented with a new challenge. Um, and it's people like Mr. Chang who, you know, they just get you to think outside the box and constantly stay creative and constantly grow. And those growth opportunities many times lead to other opportunities, you know, things that I see in the clinic, you know, creates ideas for me to create other things, you know, um, every single every project that I've worked on that's been successful in some way, shape or form has come from me being an active physical therapist, mm. you know, of me doing things in the clinic. So I think that, you know, the longer I stay in the clinic doing what I love is going to breed other ideas in the future. Yeah, it's classic. It's like the CEO of a business who thinks that they can create the entire company strategy without talking to the people who are boots on the ground from, from a day-to-day -day perspective, right? Yeah, exactly. You got to be, you know, you got to get your your hands dirty and um, keep doing that grind every day to really stay involved with what's going on. Yeah, for sure. Uh, to me, entrepreneurship, and you've done so many entrepreneurial ventures. You and I, have, I feel like we've both been around the, we, we talk about it privately about our entrepreneurial uh, frustrations and, and things that happen. <clears throat> to me, entrepreneurship is a constant tightrope between impact and burnout. I think about that every okay. single day. You seem to have more balance than most, but people don't see the frustrations and the stress and the, the very real costs in many aspects behind the scenes. What goes through your mind when I describe entrepreneurship as a constant tightrope between burnout and impact? Is that something that you agree with? That's spot on. And right now I'm much less stressed and I have much more balance because I did sell my other businesses. But like when I was in the thick of running those different operations along with my physical therapy clinic. I mean, teetering on the line of, of burnout all the time. And I probably did burn out, you know, a few times and, and it takes a, a really long time to recover. And it's part of the reason why I haven't jumped right into another project yet, because I still have a bit of a hangover from those other two things as exciting and rewarding and as fun as they were, they in order to be, in my opinion, or to be really successful as an entrepreneur, you really have to be all in on whatever you're doing. And so that requires sacrifice in other areas of your life. But in your head, you must know that, you know, that can't last forever. You can't sprint forever. It's more of a marathon type thing. And eventually you have to add balance to the other aspects of your life. Otherwise, burnout happens. And then that thing that you're working on becomes unsuccessful anyways. Yeah, for sure. Especially people when they launch something because they have a passion for it. And even if it's, uh, even if it's unsuccessful, then that can be even, even worse. And if people aren't looking after themselves along the process and it has horrible ramifications and you start to resent the very thing that you created in the, in the first place, I know some businesses and things that once I was out of them, I still felt like I had some type of lingering PTSD just as a result of all the frustrations and, and stress and things that can, that can happen. 
you're a super fit dude. You've competed at the CrossFit Games, which is about as tough as a, a physical event can possibly be. You still train five days a week, which is amazing. How do you structure your day so you can make sure you get that training in five times a week? It really has to do with discipline. Um, I, I make it a priority to where I put my workouts into my schedule. Um, when I was, again, more in depth in some of these other projects, I would let part of, um, you know, work kind of take over to where it would impact my workouts. And I always found that I was far less productive when I was not training, when I was not working out. Um, and that sense of burnout came much faster when I was not focusing on, you know, the physical side of things. And for me, it, uh, exercise is a keystone habit, right? When you do it, it makes everything else better. It makes your eating better. It makes your sleeping better. It makes your mental focus better. So not doing that makes everything else harder. So for me, it's it's so important to do that very early on in the day because it makes the rest of the day, no matter whatever happens with the rest of the day, I, I always can feel like I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish because I got that in. You know, so for me, it's an absolute priority to, you know, to do that um, five days a week, but also a priority to give myself two rest days because that's, you don't, you don't want to burn out on the physical side either. For sure. Is, is there anything that you do outside of physical training? It's an essential part of your, your daily routine. You know, one of the favorite things that I like to do is I'll take my dogs for a long walk where I wear a um, weight vest, 30 pound weight vest. And we'll do like a ruck walk where we'll do like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. And, uh, you know, a lot of times when I take them out, like I'll be listening to audiobooks, like I, I, you know, definitely an addict when it comes to that. But on my days off, I, I don't listen to anything. And I just kind of try to take in all of the environment, you know, pay attention to them. And uh, it's a really special moment for me to really decompress and just kind of think about, you know, my week that just happened, upcoming weeks. And I think that that moment of reflection combined with like a little bit of light exercise uh, is, is very important for me. Is there anything that you know that you need to do each day for your life or, or almost each day that you struggle to get done that you just feel deep down that you, you're not as disciplined as you want to be? Like an example for that with me would be, um, things like meditation, which I created a process to get better at that this year because I had never done it long enough to experience the benefits. Another one is something like the functional fitness. Like I would go and just do incidental exercise. I go for a walk with my daughter every morning, possibly she's my weight vest or, uh, or possibly uh, to the beach on the, on the weekends, uh, things like that. But having you where I can say, cool, let's just schedule in a whole bunch of sessions right now holds me accountable. So I don't have to worry about that. So it's me basically having that external accountability, which is you to make sure I get that done. Is there anything as part of your life that you do struggle to get done that you know you need to do? And if so, how do you handle it? Um, I think in the area of sleep, that that's really hard. Um, because I work, you know, I start at you know, seven, seven thirty in the morning, and then I don't finish until like 7 p.m. And so, like when you get home, you have dinner and you want to kind of do a certain degree of decompressing, you know, which might involve involve watching TV. And so um that pushes my sleep time back a little bit. And uh my wife is also a night owl, so she keeps me up usually a little bit longer than I want to be, but <laughs> Again, we don't get to spend much time with each other except for that that small period. So I think I have to do that. Um, but I usually will make up for it with, I try to take like 20 minute naps. So like having lunch, you know, in, the, in midday and then just forcing myself to either, you know, go in the bedroom or lie in the neck hammock for like 20 minutes, you know, with an eye mask on, just completely. I don't do the typical meditation as most people prescribe, but just complete 
uh, silence, mm. you know, for 20, 30 minutes a day really helps to recharge my batteries and get back after it. And, and days that I don't do that, I feel a huge impact to where I just don't think the same way. I, my head isn't as clear. I don't have as much energy to finish the day. So that's something that I don't always do well, but I really try to make it a priority. You've had some amazing wins in the business world. So I'm excited to dig into all of that now. Let's start with prehab to perform. When you started the business, were you focused on applying what you learned as a physical therapist or were you always focusing on the bigger picture as in thinking about some unmet needs that you could possibly bring in as solutions for those people who you were working with? So when I first started my physical therapy career, I, I started in a physical therapy clinic to where it was insurance-based. I was seeing you know, three to four people an hour and I, I burnt out after about a year and a half because I felt so guilty because I, I loved my, my patients, but you can't possibly give them quality care when you're running around patient to patient, you know, every 15 minutes, like within that hour time. So I really, I just felt really guilty about that. And I promised myself that I would never work as a physical therapist unless I'm one-on-one -on -one again, you know? So when I started prehab to perform back in 2013, uh, I decided that I didn't want to deal with insurance. And I was only going to see people one-on-one. -on -one. And so it took me a while to kind of build that business up because it's, it's a atypical model, but I wanted to focus on, you know, again, giving people my one-on-one -on -one attention, but I also wanted to focus on not just physical therapy, but also athletic performance. Cause really the, the two are tied together, you know, not just getting people to get rid of their shoulder pain that they're coming in for, but also teaching them how to squat, teaching them how to do a deadlift. Um, and I, created this niche that I never really expected to where now most of the people that come in and see me, they don't see me even for physical therapy. They see me for more of like personal training through the eyes of a physical therapist so that they don't get re-injured, but to keep excelling, you know, for the rest of their lives. I mean, I look at exercise and, and PT and prehab is basically like brushing your teeth. It's mm -hmm. just something you got to do every day for the rest of your life. And your body would be much happier for it. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when uh, there was one time when you were away and I needed to get some help and I went, to, I had to go to a different physio and that was a horrible experience. So uh, you're definitely the man when it comes to everything on the physical training side, which is great. Um, two years after you started prehab to perform, you co-founded Stretch Lab. Did you feel that that was a particularly big gamble at the time? And when did you know you were onto a winner? Yeah, at first, I mean, we... My two partners, we had no idea what the hell we were doing. You know, we just had this, we just knew that we had this idea that, that no one had really tapped into before. And, uh, you know, stretching is one of those things that people, they know that they need to do it. Uh, and they always say that they're going to like do it after the workout and they never do. And that leads to like a lot of injuries and whatnot. And so we're like, well, why don't we just do this for people? You know, so like after they go to the gym, they can just come here. They can just lie down. We'll do all the stretching for them. And then they're on with their day. And uh, when we first started, I mean, it was, it's comical. We, you know, trained people in my physical therapy clinic while like the actual first location was being worked on. The people that I was training were like hairstylists, bartenders, people who had no experience in that field at all. You know, because anyone who did have experience who was a massage therapist or healthcare practitioner, physical therapist, they didn't want to touch it because they didn't think that, you know, this was actually going to be successful. So we had to just take whoever we could. And so when I created the stretching programs, I had to think about that in mind. How can I make these stretches simple enough that anyone can learn them, you know, and do them at a level to where people want to actually pay for that service 
and continue to pay for the service. And so it was a huge learning curve for me and trying to figure out all those intricacies because, yeah, are there better stretches that I can do for people? Maybe, but finding that balance of like creating that simplicity uh, where both the, you know, the flexologist can do it really well and the person who's actually getting the stretch gets a really good experience where people want to come back. So it was a huge gamble, but we really believe that it could be something really big. Had no idea that it'd be as big as it is today, you know. How, what was the price point per hour when people, uh, when you first launched? We had a few different tiers. Uh, I believe we had a 30 minute, we've changed it so many times, but like a 30 minute stretch was like 25 bucks. You know, a 30 minute stretch was like 25 and then like a 45 minute stretch was maybe like $45. So super low price point, just enough to basically pay the bills, you know? And then as our people got better, um, then we progressively like increase the price point. We increase like the the time domains because there's some people that want to get stretched for like 90 minutes. So we we adapted along the way, um, but we had luckily a very good base baseline to start with. Yeah, you you had with Stretch Lab. You mentioned business partners. You had you had so many moving parts. You had business partners. I believe you had investors as well, didn't you? At one point. Yeah. So you had business partners, investors. You had hundreds of physical locations. You had all of these different staff to train. How challenging was it to manage your stress levels during all of those, with all of those dynamics in play? Extremely challenging. It was uh, time management just became extremely crucial where having a calendar, I had to put everything into that calendar and check it every single day, you know, the day before to make sure that like things just, you know, synced up perfectly. And many times they didn't. And many times I was really stressed out and I overextended myself, but I was lucky to have done this you know, in my twenties or maybe early thirties to where I had a lot of energy to do that, you know, um, which I think, you know, pursuing these types of things is really important the earlier you can, cause you have the energy to do that. Um, but it was certainly a learning experience, you know, on how to like figure out how to balance everything. But there, there's a quote that I like, you know, if you need something done, give it to the busiest person that, you know, and it's like, when you get in that groove and you get in that cycle, you're just basically working all day, but you don't think about it. You know, it's just, okay, on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. You're not like worried about, you know, what you have to do. You just do it. Yeah, it's so true. It's one of my favorite quotes as well. Actually, mm -hmm. it's absolutely brilliant. You eventually exited Stretch Lab in a seven-figure deal. How did you know it was time to move on from something that was obviously such a big part of your life and something that you'd put so much work and, and effort into? You know, it just got to a point to where uh, the partners that we, who basically purchase a large percentage of the business at that time, we just began to have differences of opinions on where we wanted the business to go and how we wanted to operate. And, uh, you know, sales were really good. You know, they were selling franchises like crazy. And we just felt like it was a good opportunity to exit on top um, because we didn't know, you know, what the market would look like in the next few years. Um, and uh, thank goodness we did because we sold basically a few months before, you know, this virus hit and it would have been absolutely catastrophic for us. Yeah. Physical you know, contact business during a pandemic, not the, <laughs> yeah. You know, so to hold like all those leases and whatnot, it would have been just really terrible. So, you know, we got really lucky. Um, and, uh, you know, another quote that I really like a bird in the hands worth two in the bush, mm. you know, when we had a good enough offer to where it certainly can change our lives and, you know, why not take it? And then for me, it's like, okay, that gives me another opportunity to work on my next thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Don't be greedy and enjoy that freedom. Uh, you have different phases and things for your life. 
In 2017, your life changed again when you invented the neck hammock. What was the process of taking that from idea to first having a prototype? Yeah, so one day I was working out in the gym and I tweaked my neck doing handstand push-ups. And, you know, I was extremely frustrated because this has happened multiple times before. And uh, the one thing that I learned in physical therapy school was cervical traction. Um, Whenever my neck would hurt, cervical traction would always help me. But the machines were always, you know, big and bulky and super expensive. And so in my head, I was like, well, how can I recreate the cervical traction right now that I don't need a machine? So I just grabbed a, a thick resistance band wrapped around a pole, wrapped around the back of my head, and I laid down for 10 minutes. 10 minutes later, my neck pain was gone. So I knew that I was onto something. um, And so the developing of it was I had to find an industrial designer, and thank goodness for the internet to let me know that that's what I needed, uh, where a guy that I worked with on a project in Florida for other inventions that I like started, um, I'd already had a contact with him. So I basically gave him, you know, my general ideas. And then going back to the environment thing, um, a buddy of mine introduced me to another guy in town who had like, you know, hookups with suppliers and, and other industrial designers that he swore by. And it was just this slow process over time where we started with that idea and kept, would test, retest, test, retest. And again, as a physical therapist, every single one of my patients at the end of their session would be like, oh, uh, you know, I just created this thing, you know, why don't you try it out for 10 minutes and let me know what you think. And so I had hundreds of data of, of feedback on like, you know, this is the foam is too uncomfortable. The bands are too flexible, whatever. I had all this data that was coming in that people luckily were very honest with me. So I just kept making changes based on all those things. And so it was a process that took much, much longer than I ever thought it would. Um, but it ended up turning out. Yeah, that's uh, the research you did yourself is much better than any focus group that you could pay to go and get that done with a exactly, bunch of randoms. Yeah. The crowdfunding campaign was obviously instrumental in your success. Were there two or three main things that you did to make sure that crowdfund all those crowdfunding campaigns were so successful? Yeah, for me, um, you know, I, I had been told. Uh, there's a guy, Perry Marshall, who was a, I would call him a mentor to me. I went to a conference of his and, and we sat down for lunch and I just had the idea of the neck hammock. And he told me that the most important thing that you can do is create a video where in 10 seconds, the user completely understands what you've created and understands and how it can bring them value and why they should buy it in 10 seconds. And so for me, the video, creating a video that that almost created an emotional response where you saw it and you didn't exactly know what the product does or why it works, but you saw it and you knew that you liked it. And so for me, creating a really good video like that for the neck hammock was imperative. And, you know, I was a huge stickler on it. I, I hated the first few iterations of it. And, you know, it was fairly like low quality type video. But the great irony is like the the clips of the video that we still use today for ads are the worst quality like tapes where they're they're using it on like this disgusting carpet. But it demonstrated that value of people using it and it feeling good. Um, so having a really good video uh, was number one. Having you know a really good unique selling proposition was number two, and then creating a price point to where it was almost an impulse purchase for people where, yeah, I'll give this thing a try. It's worth it. You know, it's a hell of a lot cheaper than me going to see my physio or me going to the doctor's office or get surgery or, or whatnot. 
So, you know, those three things combined is what I think made it uh, a truly a large success. Is that what you were, is that how you came up with the pricing strategy? You evaluated what were the alternatives if someone wanted a solution for that problem? Yeah. Well, that, and I also did a lot of research on, which I recommend anyone who launches any product to do months, if not years of research on other similar products or in even products that aren't necessarily similar, but would be about that same price point because, um, through my research and seeing other products, other neck type products, posture type products, I saw what they priced it at and I saw who was the most successful doing it. And based on that data and that research, that's what helped mold uh, our specific price points for what we wanted to sell. If you didn't have the resources and things at your disposal right now, all you had was your knowledge and you were able to invent a new device, would you still go down the crowdfunding route in 2021? And what are the biggest uh, reasons that crowdfunds fail today that you're aware of? So the number one problem that I ran into very early with crowdfunding is two weeks in, I started seeing videos of my product from on other websites knocking me off. And so the, the, the great thing about crowdfunding is it creates a lot of attention. The bad thing about crowdfunding is it creates a lot of attention from bad players. And there's a lot of people now who they have businesses, you know, in other countries where that's all they do is they wait for the next Kickstarter, you know, to blow up and immediately knock it off and immediately start selling, you know, counterfeit products. So it's one of those things that uh, if you have a product that's very simple, like mine was, then, and it's very, very easy for someone to see it and immediately, you know, knock it off. I don't know that crowdfunding is the way to go. If you have something that's a little bit more complex, you know, that uh, someone would not be able to just look at it and replicate it, then crowdfunding probably is the way to go. Um, because nowadays, like with, you know, Instagram advertising, you know, Google, you can create, you know, you can bootstrap it and create ads at a very low level. And it gives you a great way to test what videos work, don't work, and you can kind of tweak and refine at a very low level and then scale up and then ramp up when you kind of have that down. With Kickstarter, you're really taking a gamble. You know, if you don't have, you know, the right images, the right creatives, the right video, and you you spend all this money to create a good Kickstarter campaign, you know, it may fail. And it may fail not because it's a bad product, but because everything else was just not ready yet. So people have this, you know, lack a little bit of patience in that they want to have like that million dollar campaign. They want to raise all this money. Uh, but the other thing is that you got to have that product ready to, to ship pretty soon after you're done because those backers, uh, they get pretty impatient. And if you don't actually have like a, a ready product in like three to six months, they're going to start asking for their money back. And that's also not a fun process to go through. Do the crowdfunding campaigns honor that request if they do want a refund? Yeah. So it's, it's tricky. Um, you know, Kickstarter will, uh, refund them their money if they request it. And luckily most people who are on Kickstarter and Indiegogo, you know, they're pretty cool about that. They and get it. Yeah. They'll, they'll give you like, you know, a little bit of leeway, but you know, if, if you tell them that you're going to ship the product in three to six months and that product is not shipped in three to six months, they get very antsy, mm. you know, and then they start looking elsewhere. And then again, it goes with the whole counterfeiting issue where, if a counterfeiter, you know, takes your product, they immediately sell it on Amazon or on their website, you know, the person will cancel the order with you and go buy the knockoff. So 
it's this delicate balance of you got to kind of have a business ready too, not just the idea. It's incredible. And it's absolutely standing that they have a barometer of finding what's, what's trending to be able to go and rip that off with, I'm sure, channels to their own manufacturing facilities and things too. Was there a moment with the neck hammock where you were like, holy shit, this thing is going to be huge? And if so, do you remember that specifically? Yeah. So the first day that we launched, um, you know, we hit all of our backers and we raised like, I think like $50,000 in the first day, which I was like, holy crap. Like the fact that someone wants to buy my product, like that feeling is, it's a really special feeling, you know, that you've created something that people want. Uh, but then we went a few days where then it dropped down to like $3,000 a day in sales. And it's like, okay, maybe people don't want it. You know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. And then what happened was, is that, uh, my videos got picked up by news outlets and they went viral. I mean, there was one video that had like 20 million views um, on it. And so like our sales just completely skyrocketed. It was like 50K a day, every day for like, you know, a few weeks. That's when I knew I'm like, okay, this thing is, you know, it's, if this many people see it and they like it, I, I think I'm onto something. Yeah, it's got legs, especially mm -hmm. when you're getting picked up by Dr. Oz and Forbes and Gwyneth Paltrow and everything else. It's amazing. There was a time which you and I have spoken about constantly because I would text you in it. I would tag you in these posts when my news feeds were neck hammock, neck hammock, neck hammock. And it never in a million years occurred to me that these were ripoff brands mm -hmm. that had stolen your brand and essentially your business. Like it's literally stealing, targeting your friends like me through the Facebook algorithm, through doing what they do. Um, by these shady companies to make money and in doing so they're cutting you out of the process from something that you created. Were you aware that that would happen? And how did that affect your mindset seeing that happen over and over again? I thought that it's something that could potentially happen like months down the road. And I never anticipated that it would happen as fast as it did. And then the scale that it did, I mean, it was, uh, overwhelming, you know, how many people were knocking it off. And it's not like you can just call the police and be like, Hey, you know, they're stealing my idea. Like, who do you call? You know, who do you contact? And so, um, again, through the environment thing, you know, I would put messages out on Facebook. I'd reach out to people who were like in the tech world and what I could do. And, you know, there's, I learned about DMCA takedowns that you can do like through Shopify and, and Facebook, but they're just extremely time in, uh, intensive and just inefficient. So then I basically had to find like, um, intellectual property, uh, like police out there who basically would find these knockoffs and do the takedowns for me. Um, but like, thank God I had like patents and copyrights and trademarks because had I not had all that, they could just sell away, you know, and then Shopify wouldn't do anything about it. Or Facebook wouldn't do anything about it. Um, but it was, there's a podcast that I used to listen to all the time, how I built this. And a buddy sent me this very specific episode because he knew what I was going through. It was about the TRX guy who dealt with massive knockoff issues. And he talked about when it was a feeling that resonated with me is, is they're stealing your mojo because there, there's like, you're doing everything in your power to make a really kick-ass product. You've done all the right things. And these counterfeiters just completely steal that mojo from you because you just feel completely helpless. You feel like there's nothing that you can do to resolve the problem. So I knew there was gonna be problems. I knew there was gonna be competition along the way. I had no idea that it was gonna be this, this type of problem. So 
and it I was something I had to adapt with. I suppose there's not even any guarantee of a sale that if someone has placed an order with this other company, that that company ends up going under or, or whatever happens. There's no guarantee that that customer is all of a sudden going to turn around and then start buying the product from you. And it means you have out-of-pocket expenses for lawyers, which is probably the most uh, one of the most expensive fields and things that you can be in. Knowing what you know now about patents and trademarks and all of those types of things, how can anyone, like how can the little guy protect themselves against some of these shady companies when you have things like these uh, very expensive legal fees to get rid of these these companies? And and how can you even be aware of, of these companies? Like you were aware because the product was such a big hit. There might be companies out there from people that they just never even see. Yeah. Uh, there's a few things there. The The cheapest way to protect yourself on the internet is getting a trademark and getting copyrights on all, all the videos and photos and things like that. It costs like $25 to copyright an image. Okay. To get a patent, you're talking a few thousand dollars and patents are arguable. Okay. So like, unless like what they're selling looks identical to the design patent that you have, utility patents don't even work when it comes to DMCA takedowns. So if you're going to do something, it has to be a design patent to use that, you know, to your background or to as ammunition against like people like Amazon. Uh, but trademarks and copyrights, those are the easiest first two things that you can do. But it's kind of like this delicate balance, though, because you got to make sure that you have enough money to put in the product to market it. You know, you can't be completely ready for the knockoffs. You have to have a successful product first. You know, and then once you have a successful product, then you need to invest in the IP. Um, because the other thing about IP is that it doesn't police itself. Mm. You know, you have to then spend money on litigation to then go after these people. So it's not just the patent itself that's enough. You know, look at triple, quadruple the cost to get a legal team to then hunt these people down and bring them to court if that's where you decide to go. So, you know, as with anything, start small and then grow it from there. But just kind of always in the back of your head, be prepared for that next level of protection. Yeah, you don't want to have $20 million in sales and $30 million in, in legal fees. Yeah. <laughs> so are you saying you had to go and copyright every single uh, video and, and images and things like that that you were posting on social media? Is that correct? Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but again, like, you know, getting copyrights for 25 pictures and videos uh, is not nearly as expensive as like, you know, getting a bunch of design and utility patents. So um, it's a super cheap way that you can really protect yourself. For sure. Manufacturing can be one of the toughest things to set up. You've got like minimum order quantities and, and foreign countries that you've got to go and manufacture. A lot of complexity in that. How was your process on the manufacturing side? Was it relatively smooth sailing or was it pretty brutal? Um, it was tough at first. I mean, it, cause again, it's like, who the hell do you know that has factories in China and that can, you know, find you, how do you know that they're not ripping you off? And, and so, um, make you paranoid. Make, exactly. You're just paranoid about everything, you know? Uh, but it was kind of word of mouth, you know, it started with word of mouth that brought me, um, one guy who would go over to China and he'd find different factories and figure out who could source it. And then, you know, once we had the first iterations of the neck hammock, I mean, it would cost me anywhere between nine and $10 a unit to manufacture. And then again, through word of mouth, I found someone else who then got it down to like seven. And then through word of mouth, through one of Lindsay's clients um, was actually friends with a woman who was on Shark Tank. And I, you know, asked if I could be introduced. I was a huge fan. Um, and then after speaking with her, she introduced me to a guy that, that she worked with to help source. 
And he absolutely was a game changer for neck hammock. Um, I, there was multiple times where I thought I was going to go bankrupt, where I was going to have to, you know, close up shop and it wasn't going to work. And he helped me by, you know, he brought the cost of goods down. He had relationships, you know, over there. So he brought the cost of goods down from $10 to $5, you know, and that's a big deal. Um, but he also created these other relationships that I had no idea who to even talk. Like he introduced me to my legal team that I use today who are absolute rock stars who saved me a lot of money and also are creating enforcement. Uh, so just kind of a, a tangent is, is having the right people in your corner is so incredibly important and you're probably not going to find them in the first or second or third time. Uh, but when you get that right person, you just hang on to them forever. Yeah, for sure. Was there a particularly dark day along that entrepreneurial journey that stands out to you? Yeah. I mean, there was a few dark days, um, to where I remember just like basically sitting on the floor in my bathroom, just like thinking, how am I going to tell my wife that like, you know, I lost all the money like with this and we're going to go out of business. Um, you know, there was a few times to where I had ordered too much inventory because I was expecting a lot of sales. And then all of a sudden sales completely plummeted for, you know, Facebook changed their algorithm to where they were like making it really hard for health and wellness brands. So we went from like, you know, getting 500 K a month in sales down to like 50. And so I'm like, what am I going to do with all this inventory? Like, how am I going to afford to pay these different people? Like they're expecting to get paid. And, uh, you know, just somehow, some way I found a way to scratch my way out of the bottom and figure it out. But you know, you just have all these different moving pieces going on and you feel like you're in it all alone. Um, that there were so many of those dark days where I just didn't sleep and, but you just somehow kind of figure it out, you know, just keep, just keep working, just keep, you know, moving forward. Yeah, you did it. It's amazing. I like to think that on our strongest days when we're at our happiest <laughs> and our most productive selves, it's, it's good to sometimes, even if you literally write a message on a flashcard that at your darkest day, you could read what you have said to yourself. Is there a message that comes to mind that you would say on your strongest day that you would write on a flashcard to show yourself on your darkest day? Yeah. I mean, I think that I would say just, just keep moving forward, you know, just keep moving. Uh, the second you stop and you start sulking and you start feeling bad about yourself, um, that's when you're in big trouble. But if there's one thing that I always did that, you know, sometimes got me in trouble with my relationship, but I would use work as my way to get out of things. You know, I could always, you know, just get up early and just answer emails and answer customer service and just, just figure out a way to just keep moving. And when you keep moving, it just creates momentum. And so I think on the, on the card, I would just say, just keep moving, mm. keep moving, keep working. For sure. I love that. You, 20, January 2021, you exited Neck Hammock, your second seven-figure exit. How did you know it was time to leave that business, which I guess was you were going at it more alone than you were for Stretch Lab. So how, how did you know that it was the right time to exit that business? You know, COVID was a really good year for us, believe it or not, because a lot of people at home, um, a lot of businesses stopped advertising on Instagram and Facebook. So that brought the overall cost of advertising way down. So we were really able to capitalize that. And, you know, we had really strong sales as a result. And, uh, you know, I just knew that like with, with the stretch lab exit, it just felt really good to be proud of something and to get, you know, actually paid for it. And for me, 
you know, while sales are really good, I would like to exit on top, you know, buy low, sell high type mentality so that I then could take advantage of, you know, any other opportunities that would manifest, you know, whether it's this year, it's next year, I can be ready for them. Um, where so many years I haven't really had the cash available to, you know, take advantage of certain opportunities, but this, that's kind of what I wanted was to now be ready for the next stage of my life beyond inventor, more maybe in investor phase. For sure. You have had so many different experiences. You've worked with tens of thousands of people now through stretch lab, through prehab to perform, through the neck hammock. Are there any lessons that stand out on consumer behavior that you will take forward with future business endeavors? You know, people just want to feel good. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, at the end of the day, like people just want to feel good. And if you provide that to them, um, you're always going to have some sort of success. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way that I make people feel good is actually making them work. You know, mm -hmm. with Stretch Lab, that was a bit different. Um, but with what I do now, um, you know, making people feel good about themselves when they look in the mirror. You know, like that's what brings people back in. And so like, if you want to keep it simple, it's just that. What, what part of your career are you most proud of? Would it be the transformations that you have in the clinic day to day? Would it be the big business success that you've had playing on the world stage? What would it be? Honestly, I think that uh, like for, with the neck hammock, one thing that really stands out is a lot of the testimonials that I've received who people were in debilitating type situations, debilitating pain. And they wrote me just thanking me from the bottom of their heart on how the neck hammock helped that get them out of like a migraine headache to where they couldn't eat for two days or they couldn't sleep or they this or that. And knowing that, you know, of the hundreds of thousands of units that we've shipped, that we're able to make such an impact on people at a large scale and make their lives better. Like for me, that's something I'm really proud of. You know, I feel like everyone wants to figure out how they can leave this world a better place. Uh, you know, even something as simple as the neck hammock, a simple solution to your, your neck pain without, you know, drugs. Uh, that's kind of one of my ways to, to give back. Yeah, it must be surreal reading those messages, but obviously very well deserved for all the effort and work that you've put into it in the first place. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Uh, let's move into the what we call the win the day rocket round. Ten questions for some pretty quick answers. You ready for this one, Steve? Let's do it. Uh, number one, what quote inspires you the most? I know we've covered a couple of good ones already in this episode. Is there a, a quote that inspires you the most? So my friend Caroline actually said this to me. She said, you will never regret hard work. And it's something that I think about all the time. You know, whether I'm in a, a, a tough workout or, you know, grinding away like on a project, you will never regret hard work. It's like the Navy SEALs. The only easy day was yesterday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Number two, morning coffee or evening wine? Coffee. Get the day started off on the right foot. Love it. Number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? Have patience. You know, things take time to develop. Anything that's worth something takes time. And so just give yourself a little bit more patience. Number four, what book do you gift the most? Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Obsession. Love it. Actually, speaking about books, Phil Knight's Shoe Dog, I feel like has got a lot of parallels to your journey. That, you like I that read one? that. Yeah, that yeah. was, I read that during that hammock. Very, very powerful book. Yeah. Recommend. Very powerful and probably very timely for when you, when you read that. It's a great book. Uh, number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? Uh, I don't believe there is failure. I believe that there's just learning opportunities. Number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? 
Uh, probably one of my buddy best friends from college who unfortunately passed away in a motor vehicle accident. Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? My virtual assistant, Lucy. <laughs> Game changer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Completely adds hours to my days. Yeah, I love it. Uh, number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. I would love to travel the US in an RV with my wife and my dogs. Very cool. And final question, what's one thing you do to win the day? Win the morning. Yeah, very, very good tip. Well, Steve, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Pleasure to be here. To connect with Dr. Steve Sedell, and you should because I'm sure his next big idea is coming up very, very soon. You can follow him on Instagram at prehab to perform and visit his website, prehabtoperform.com. We will include links to that and more in the show notes. That's all for today. If you've enjoyed this episode, remember to leave a comment on YouTube or on Apple Podcasts to let us know your favorite takeaway from the episode and also share it with a friend who you feel like would benefit from some of the amazing gems that Steve has shared. Remember to get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always. Thank you.